Uh, hi, I'm Ciprian Begu, a student of Vedic philosophy. I'm here with Ashish Dalela, author of many books in Vedic philosophy and science. And we are starting a podcast series called Shabda Podcast, which is mostly me asking Ashish questions about his writing. Hi, Ashish. Hi. Okay, let's get started. You write on the interface of religion and science. You appear to straddle both words. Doesn't it sound conflicting? How do you reconcile these two things? Well, honestly, I don't write on religion per se. I write on Vedic philosophy, which is not exactly a religion as something which is based on faith and belief. Vedic philosophy is completely amenable to rational inquiry and empirical confirmations, just the same as science is today. Even more, Vedic philosophy has a material component that overlaps in the subject matter with modern science, besides the spiritual component which transcends matter. So when I speak about religion and science, I'm actually talking about the continuum from material to spiritual as it exists in Vedic philosophy and as can be rationally and empirically understood. Now that we set aside the issue of uh, science-religion conflicts, we can trace the journey from religion to science through multiple steps. I will outline here some about roughly six steps. Okay, so to know God, we must know the soul. That's the first step. But to know the soul, we must know transmigration. That's the second step. To know transmigration, we must understand the nature, natural laws of, you know, guna and karma, uh, so which is the third step. And to understand guna and karma, we, we must understand the judgments of good and bad, right and wrong, apart from the judgments of true and false. To make these judgments, we have to first have meanings because judgments can only be applied on the meanings. And to address the issue of meaning, we have to describe matter as meaning. So these steps from matter to God or God to matter are described in Sankhya, which is a school of Vedic philosophy quite clearly. There are, of course, material objects in Vedic philosophy, but immediately following these objects are qualities or qualia in terms of which we sense. Then there are the senses, then there's the mind and so on. So above the material elements are the qualities, above the qualities are the senses, above the senses are meanings in the mind, above the mind is the intellect, which performs the judgment of truth. Then there's the ego which carries out the judgment of good and bad. Then there's a moral sense responsible for the judgment of right and wrong. The soul transcends all these material elements and God transcends the soul. Therefore, to reach God, we have to pass through all these levels. The problem of understanding soul and God begins in the problem of matter itself because this matter has to be described in a way compatible with the qualities of perception, such as color, tone, touch, smell, taste, etc. Matter in modern science is described in a way that is devoid of these qualities at present, which creates the problem of perception, namely how the body which is made up of matter, devoid of such qualities, leads to the perception of qualities. Most cognitive Scientists today are studying the bottom of this hierarchy and occurs between the objects and the qualities. This is also sometimes known as the problem of qualia. Cognitive scientists call this the problem of consciousness, but of course, consciousness of the soul is far above this problem. To reach the problem of consciousness, we have to first describe the qualities, then the senses, then the mind, then the intellect, then the ego, and then morality. This is a long journey, which is indicated in Sankhya philosophy. Modern science and philosophy are struggling to solve the problem in understanding the very next level of matter called quality or qualities. So the destination of soul and God is rather distant. The problem of quality is created in science because science rejected the idea that the world has anything to do with human perception. John Locke, for example, famously drew the distinction between primary and secondary properties, where the primary properties are length, mass, charge, energy, etc. 
There can be properties that color, taste, smell, sound, touch, etc. John Locke claimed that material world was primary properties and human perception was secondary qualities. Once the divide between these two was framed in this way, the chasm could not be crossed in the philosophy of science. To solve the problem of quality, we have to rethink the primary secondary property divide and define matter in a new way. This description is available in Sankhya philosophy, but it is not the description of modern science. It is rather a type of reality that is consistent with the existence of the qualities of qualia. Before we reach the study of soul and God, we have to study matter in a new way. The study begins in qualities, progresses to the senses, the mind, the intellect, the ego, and morality. I collectively call these problems the problem of meaning because they involve this use of everyday concepts. The study of meaning is actually two things, study of the mind and various types of judgments. It is also the study of matter in a way that's compatible with the existence of the mind. Once we have understood how matter is different from the description in modern science, then we can induct the mind, then the intellect, then the ego, then morality, and then the soul. The study of God follows after the study of the soul. So there is a natural progression from the study of pure matter, which presently constitutes science, to the study of God, which is, constitutes religion. The study passes through the intermediate levels, including a new understanding of matter, then mind, then intellect, then ego, then morality, and then soul. Oh, this seems like a this seems like a long journey. You mentioned above that before we can study religion, we have to study matter in a new way. What do you mean by this study? Is it like the modern science? Can you elaborate? Yeah, the the new study of matter is also rational and empirical. It is not like modern science. Modern science is based on the distinction between the primary and secondary properties, as I said. The primary properties are studied in science and secondary properties are observations not studied in science. The nomenclature itself suggests that the world is primary and the observer is secondary. However, in Sankhya, this idea is inverted. Therein, the senses are primary and the objects are embodiments of the sensual qualities. The sensual qualities are encoded in matter quite like we encode a picture in terms of red, blue, and green colors and store it on a computer disk. The red, blue, and green colors involve a linguistic convention of red, green, and blue, which are encoded using the properties of atomic objects. Therefore, from physical perspective, we just see the physical properties of atomic objects, but these physical properties can also be described as symbols representing meanings. To describe material reality as symbols, we need to say that there's a language which converts the physical states into words. To describe nature in a new way, we have to describe it as representing these words or symbols of meaning. So by a new type of science, I really mean that matter is the objective embodiment or representation of subjective meanings. Matter is therefore not the objects of science, it is rather the symbols which also encode meanings. Now each symbol has two kinds of properties. It has a physical state and it has a meaning. These two things are not separate. Most linguists and philosophers separate the physical state from the meaning, but in Sankhya, these two are not separate. The physical state is the representation. <laughs> For example, when you see the yellow color, in science, you think there are some atomic particles which have physical states. And when atomic states change, light is emitted and you see some color. Thus, you believe that yellowness is not in the world, it's simply a frequency of light that is interpreted by our eyes as you know, red, green, and blue colors. But in Sankhya, this atomic state itself the symbol of meaning, which means that physical properties like location, direction, duration, and tense are used to create a language. The directions in space, for example, are types of meaning. So when a spin vector points in a particular direction, it represents a certain type of meaning because of the nature of space itself. 
In modern computers, for example, the upspin denotes the digit one and the downspin represents the digit zero. So we're already talking about meanings based upon the directions in space. By this representation, we convert a physical property such as spin or direction into a symbol such as one or zero. As these symbols aggregate, we can create more complex meanings, but this language of spin being up representing one and down spin representing zero is arbitrary. It can also be the other way around. To fix the direction up to one and the direction down to zero, you require a linguistic convention. For example, you have to say that the upward direction denotes the symbol one and the downward direction the symbol zero. Similarly, to convert location, duration, and tense into symbols, you need a convention. All these conventions are methods by which we interpret physical states as meanings. Once we have defined these conventions, we don't have to talk about the physical state at all. Just like you don't have to talk up and down spins when you say the computer bit is one or zero. So these conventions constitute a language because by the convention, the physical object becomes a symbol of meaning. We have talked about uh, the, the, the up being one and, and the down being zero. And there, you know, you can talk about meanings coming from directions, uh, from the tense and so on. So if nature can be said to have a linguistic convention, then we will simply talk about the symbols or words. For instance, you will say that these atomic objects represent color and that color is red. And those atomic objects represent taste and the taste is sweet. You don't require to speak about energy, momentum, mass, charge, spin, angular momentum, etc. Instead, the entire vocabulary of physical sciences can be replaced by a new vocabulary of sound, touch, sight, taste, and smell by using a language convention that converts physical properties of science into symbols of meaning. Then the physical world is no longer the electrons, protons, neutrons, quarks, mass, charge, energy, momentum, angular momentum, spin, etc. It is rather the objective representation of sound, touch, sight, taste, and smell. But isn't it true that languages are all arbitrary? That any physical state can be interpreted differently using different linguistic conventions? And if so, doesn't this mean that languages are completely arbitrary and therefore nature cannot be said to encode meanings? You're partly right here, Ciprian. Uh, there's indeed many possible linguistic conventions using which we can interpret the same reality as embodying different symbols which have different meanings. But my contention and the contention of Vedic philosophy is that there is indeed a natural language. Remember that by language, we simply mean that up is one and down is zero, or left has this meaning and right has that meaning. So if somebody wants to give these directions a different set of meanings, they will have to change the coordinate reference frame, which is used to speak about meanings. For example, you can invert the reference frame by the z-axis and then spin directions are inverted. And what was zero previously would now become one and vice versa. If each person defines the reference frame in their own way, then meanings are indeed arbitrary. But it means that no two individuals can communicate with each other. Each person would only be able to talk to others who are in the same reference frame. Therefore, when I say that there's a language of nature, all I'm really saying is that there's an objective associated meaning with up and down, left and right, before and after. Each of us is free to interpret these words in a new way using their own reference frame. But I'm insisting that there is an objective reference frame in which nature itself encodes meaning. For example, there's a particular direction in space which which constitutes the plus z direction and therefore the symbol one. We cannot invert the reference frame to make it ones into zeros or vice versa because just by inverting the direction, the computer disk which stores this information will have all the ones flipped into zeros. And that would mean that the person reading the disk would obtain completely different information. 
Two individuals who have their z-axis flipped relative to each other will read the computer disk in completely different ways. So to maintain the meaning in the computer disk, we have to maintain the direction plus z. This idea constitutes the rejection of relativity in a very specific sense. You allow all kinds of reference frames and each person has the ability to interpret the meanings in their own way. But these interpretations are not just uh, uh, these interpretations are just like misperceptions or seeing a snake in the rope or a broken object in a broken glass. So an objective reference frame instead gives us the way to perceive reality just as it is. If a person uses the objective reference frame, then they get the true meaning. But if they use their own reference frame, they still get some meaning, which is a transform of the original meaning, but it is false. So in a sense, when we have meanings, the relative reference frames are illusions and the absolute or objective reference frame is the truth. The illusion also exists and we can observe it empirically, but there can be no intersubjective agreement about the illusion. Everyone's going to have a different illusion. So we can now formulate a theory of illusion based on this theory of perception. Correct perception is using the natural language to interpret reality. And an incorrect perception is using one's own language. This means that to even know the nature of reality, we must know the language convention in terms of which we interpret the physical states. This language exists in all of us as an innate sense of up and down, before and after, left and right, etc. For example, everybody knows that going up is being progressive and going down indicates decline. Forward indicates the future and backward indicates the past. Right side is the good side and the left side is the bad side. This type of understanding is pervasive in all people and is innate. Even children intuitively understand these things. Although these directions are also relative to the observer. For example, if you turn around and face the opposite direction, then the meanings of forward and backward remain intact, but they're physically different directions. So in a way, we are all carrying reference frames of meaning along with us which has common and shared conventions. But the physical mapping of these conventions to directions is arbitrary. Thus up and down have an absolute meaning, but what is up or down is relative. We can align this physical sense of direction. Then we have already have the shared meanings of up and down. But doesn't relativity reject uh, the existence of an objective reference frame? And since it is an empirically proven theory, shouldn't we accept the rejection of such frames? Well, the reason relativity works is because space is like a tree rather than a box. And this is a topic we can discuss more extensively in the next podcast, uh, where we describe space as a you know, tree rather than a box. But the reason relativity works is because it's, space is like a tree. Now, the branches of this tree are both objects and reference frames. So each branch has an orientation relative to the higher branch. Therefore, the reference frame them, themselves are not aligned to each other. They're instead twisted relative to each other. To define this twisting of the frame, we have to take the higher reference frame as the reference relative to which the twisting of the lower frame is to be defined. As we proceed upward in this tree, from, i.e. from you know, the leaves towards the root of the tree, we come to the reference frame that is not defined by a twist relative to another reference frame. This, this reference frame constitutes the root of the tree, and yet it is a reference frame in relation to which every other reference frame is oriented ultimately. We have to also understand the meaning of a reference frame. It represents a higher level concept. For example, if the axis in terms of which we are going to describe the objects as color, then the values of the objects are red, green, and blue. If the axis is sight, then the values are form, color, and size. So each person's collection of concepts by which they interpret the world or understand the world is a reference frame. And therefore, each observer has a unique reference frame that may not be aligned with the reference frames of other observers. But each reference frame has properties of location and orientation relative to the higher reference frame. 
Therefore, even though there are many individual frames, there is an absolute reference frame. This means we, don't, we are not denying the possibility that each person can interpret the world differently. We're just saying that these interpretations are not equivalent. We are not denying the possibility of individual frames. We are only disputing their equivalence. Relativity works precisely because many reference frames are possible. In each reference frame, there's an observer who interprets, but the observer itself not being interpreted. That is the interpretation of the world is not subject to a judgment. For example, if this interpretation is true or right or good, the tree structure instead allows us to both interpret and judge. This judgment includes judging ourselves in relation to a higher frame. If we neglect that judgment, then we can say that all frames are equivalent, even though the observer in each frame sees the world differently. And they cannot agree on what is the true nature of reality. So each observer says, I'm not interested in understanding you. I would rather judge you from my perspective, but I'm not prepared to be judged by anyone else. In the ultimate sense, each observer is being judged by the higher observer, but modern science, by adopting relativity, is rejecting the outcomes of the judgment. The outcomes of judgment in Vedic philosophy are called karma, and this karma places the observer in a situation where he is compelled to experience certain events. When we reject the existence of judgments, then the theory becomes incomplete. For example, in relativity, we can predict all the events that will occur, but not who will participate in those events. So when the outcomes of judgment are neglected, this neglect leads to the incompleteness in the theory. Relativity works because there are indeed many reference frames that are oriented differently, but it doesn't work because these frames are not equivalent and are judged by other frames. We have the choice of arbitrary reference frames, but the choice is entail a responsibility through judgment. So when relativity re rejects these judgments, it becomes an incomplete theory. Now, this is a more involved topic that we should probably discuss some other time, but I just wanted to quickly respond to a question, which is that the existence of relative frames doesn't deny the existence of an objective frame. Because these frames are organized like a tree and the higher frame judges the lower frame. Relativity is an incomplete theory because it rejects the existence of higher and lower reference frames. In a very simple sense, we are individual observers free to choose, but the choice is being judged by higher observers. And the judgments create karma, which pushes us, pushes us into different situations. If we say that all the frames are equivalent, then we can't explain how the observer is pushed into situations automatically by the laws of nature. And we cannot predict which observer will experience what. We can only talk about the events of the universe, but not the events specific to an observer. Okay. So I understand that the connection between religion and science is meaning. Or rather, meanings are really the first step in connecting religion and science. That's what you said. Now, using these meanings, we can understand... And based on these meanings, we can also interpret and judge. I also understand that to make this connection, we have to discard physical properties and treat the world as meanings. But I'm still not clear how postulating that there is a natural language changes the nature of reality and how this connects to Vedic philosophy. Could you elaborate a bit? Uh, that's a great question, one that can be a segue into the nature of reality in Vedic philosophy. Nature is described in, in the Vedas as originating in symbols. The term used to describe these symbols is, is, is called Sabda Brahman, which means eternal sound. And this is actually the inspiration for the title of the podcast, because we call it Shabda Podcast. So this eternal sound is comprised of alphabets and their vibrations. These alphabets comprise material objects, which atomic theory describes as standing waves, you know, which have two components, forward and backward. Vedic philosophy is saying that there's a natural language in which matter encodes meaning and perception is like reading a text by which we decode the meanings from matter. 
The difference in everyday reading and perception is that in everyday reading, we use knowledge of grammar and dictionaries to understand meanings. But when, but when nature itself is linguistic, then our senses are also linguistic. For example, our sense of sight is a symbol whose meaning is seeing. The seeing is further divided in our senses through other properties such as color, shape, distance, etc. These properties are called tanmatra in Sankhya philosophy. So the seeing symbol attaches to the color symbol and the two symbols in combination become the meaning seeing color. Then when the senses interact with the material world, which is an objective encoding of red, green, blue colors, that the seeing color symbol is enhanced into a new symbol, which means seeing color red. So in this way, the symbols are attaching to each other to create more complex propositions. And the senses are part of these propositions. In the symbolic construction, seeing is called the indriya or the sense. The color is called tanmatra or property. And red is the external object. So we have to understand the symbols are not just material things which encode redness, nor are symbols simply existing in the external world. Even our mind and body are symbolic. Some of these symbols have the meaning called red, other symbols have a meaning called color, and there are symbols whose meaning is seeing. All these symbols are atomic objects, which means that our senses are atomic. Properties in terms of which we uh, observe through the senses are atomic, even the mind is atomic. Atomic, in the original sense of the word, atomos in Greek. Old Greek uh, actually means indivisible. So this is a very general sense in which atomism is used in Vedic philosophy. All these atoms are organized So catchy constructions and our experiences actually these propositions. So based on this hierarchy, we can distinguish between the atoms and the connections between them. Space is nothing other than these connections or linkages between the atoms. So atoms are like points in space and linkages or connections between atoms is like distance between the points. So this distance or linkage between symbols is also called prana in, in Sankhya. You might have heard of this word. Prana is like a force field which is uh, in which the symbol particles are embedded. Just like in modern science, we have atomic objects which interact with other particles through a force field. Like that in Vedic philosophy, the atomic objects are replaced by symbols and the force field is replaced by prana. And uh, this, this prana actually operates under the control of conscious choice. It's not a mechanical force, uh, but it is a force nevertheless. So by prana, we can choose to join our senses to the external world in the process of trying to know, know the world. Now, when the body dies, the prana or the force field leaves the body, which means that all the atoms are still present, but the connections between these atoms begin to break down. This deterioration of the body is understood as you know, decay after death, but it is not just chemistry laws which are responsible for this deterioration. It is rather prana, which is previously joining the atoms, and now it has left the body, so the energy gradually leaks out, and the connections between the atoms are broken down. That's how the body deteriorates from a living thing to a non-living thing. Uh, therefore, the prana is also called life force. It's a key difference between a living body and a dead body. So from a spiritual perspective, the soul has left the body, but from a material perspective, the prana has left the body. In a sense, we are talking about a new theory of atomic particles, how these particles are connected by forces. This makes the discussion of meaning not just a philosophical topic debated for centuries in the past, but something that's squarely in the realm of physics. It's just not traditional physics. It is a new kind of physics in which atoms are symbols and forces are connections between the symbols. Uh. Let me see if I got this right. So you are saying that the problem of religion initially reduces to the problem of morality and judgment. Then it becomes the problem of meaning and finally becomes the study of symbols. 
And so it reduces to the problem of physics. Or am I reading this wrong? No, you're right in thinking like that. The connection between uh, science and religion is that science has to be changed to deal with meaning. Very specifically, we have to talk about a new type of atomic theory in which particles are symbols and the force is prana. So we have transformed the problem of religion into a problem of science. And this is the key difference between how science, religion, unity is treated by other people and how I'm treating it. This unity is based on Sankhya philosophy and how matter is organized into many tiers or levels as we talk about the lowest level of matter in atomic theory. The big advantage of this approach is that once we establish that atomic theory is to deal in symbols and connections between symbols, then the rest of Sankhya automatically becomes very easy. Because just as the lower level symbol is connected to higher level symbol, like that, the higher level symbol is connected to an even higher level symbol. And finally, the highest level material symbols are connected to the soul by the same prana. Therefore, the soul is controlling the material world through prana, and the prana constitutes the resolution of so-called mind-body problem, because it goes between mind and matter. The model of Sankhya is not just about material particles, but a general paradigm of how different levels of reality are interconnected. In Western philosophy, mind and body are just two levels, but in Sankhya, there are many such levels, including the qualities, the senses, the intellect, the ego, morality, etc. So we cannot rely on solving the mind-body problem just once. We have to find a general paradigm by which this problem of the interaction between multiple tiers of reality can be solved many times. But before we can solve the mind-body problem, we have to say that both mind and body are symbols of different types of meaning. The difference is that mind is a symbol of a more abstract meaning, while body is a symbol of more contingent meaning. And they are connected by prana. This is why in Sankhya, the term manas, prana, and vak is used. The term vak denotes the speech of the body. The manas denotes the mind. And the mind and body are connected by prana, which is the force or distance between a higher symbol and a lower symbol. So before we talk about religion, we have to talk about the soul, and that immediately brings the mind-body problem in science. So we have to solve the mind-body problem before we can talk about the soul, and the solution is not different from the material force problem. Just like prana is controlling the external objects, like that, the soul is controlling the mind, intelligence, ego, and morality. This naturally means that the soul is also a symbol of meaning, which is why there is a need for a new type of symbol called the soul. Material symbols have objects and properties, but the spiritual symbol is called the I or the soul. So the meaning of the symbol is I. Now this kind of symbol cannot be encoded in material objects. But both matter and spirit are symbolic, which means when we have a theory of material symbol interactions, then we can understand why there's a need for a separate type of symbol and how this new symbol interacts with the material symbols. So the mind-body interaction prevents, presents no kind, you know, not the type of divide which Descartes assumed in, in the mind-body problem. It is rather many tiers of reality which are interconnected by the same process of the prana. Okay, so let's say we can understand all these types of symbols, including that the soul is a symbol. How does that lead to religion and understanding God? Are we terminating this hierarchy of symbols at the soul and rejecting the existence of God? This would lead to an impersonal understanding of religion. Or is there something more to this, even beyond the soul? For example, into the understanding of God. Is God also a symbol? No, God is not a symbol. God is the meaning that precedes the symbol. Just like there are many symbols of redness, but none of these symbols is the idea of redness or the meaning redness. Similarly, there are many symbols of I, which are individual souls, but none of them is the pure idea of I-ness. In semiotic philosophy, the term signifier and signified are used. The signifier is the symbol and the signified is the idea. They're connected by the prana, which represents signifying. So the idea becomes a symbol, 
or the meaning and the meaning is transformed into a sign of that meaning by an act of signifying in vedic philosophy there's a distinction be made between sabda brahman and artha brahman sabda means words and artha means meanings we can say that there are words and their meanings artha brahman represents the meaning the difference between word and meaning is that there is only one instance of meaning but there are many instances of the words it's like saying that i can express the meaning many times or in many different words so from the original meaning many individual words are created these words represent the same meaning but there are many words and each word represents the original idea so this is sometimes stated in vedic literature as eko bahunam which means god is one and there are many instances of this meaning created from god so the soul is also a symbol just like a word and god is the meaning of that symbol in the vedic literature there are many examples which compare this process to the lighting of a candles from an original candle so the claim is that there is an original candle or lamp from which many candles or lamps are lighted after they are lighted up they seem all the same but because there is an original candle this candle is the meaning and subsequent candles are symbols soul is also a candle lighted from an original candle the difference between soul and god is that god is a big candle and soul is a small candle just like there's ocean of water and there's a drop of water the water in the drop and the ocean is of the same type but they are quantitatively bigger and smaller like that soul and god have the same qualities but the soul is a small drop out of the ocean therefore by studying the self one can know the nature of god But the self is not equal to god we have to distinguish between the type of the thing and the quantity of that type just like a big house and a small house are both houses but the big house is not equal to the small house so the big house is the original meaning of being a house and the small house is like a toy built in imitation of the big house due to the similarity the soul sometimes starts considering himself equal to the supreme soul the material journey begins when this confusion between soul and super soul is created there is indeed similarity of types but there is a difference of quantity the drop is part of the ocean and by knowing the drop you can roughly estimate the nature of the ocean but the ocean is the meaning and the drop is a symbol of that meaning thus it is said that the meaning is existence meaning of our existence is actually god this is not a euphemism it is literally true because the soul is a symbol and god is the meaning of that symbol so i can say that the existence of my or the meaning of my existence is god because i am the symbol of the original meaning in god we can also say that god is the meaning and soul and matter are representations of that meaning similarly because the symbol is a small meaning therefore soul and matter are parts of god this idea is expressed by saying that due to sat the soul and god are of the same type therefore in brahman where only the type is considered the soul and god are identical because of they are of the same type just like a drop of the ocean a drop of water inside the ocean you know you cannot distinguish the drop from the ocean because they are both water but god is param brahman or the original and supreme brahman and the soul is individual brahman the similarity of type is sat difference of size is chit and the individuality is anand so the soul is similar to god based on type dissimilar from god based on size and both are separate individuals due to their individual personalities so once we reach the understanding the matter is symbolic then we can talk about how the soul is a symbol and then when we get to the understanding of the soul or the most fundamental meaning called i then we can talk about what is the original i meaning from which the words are expanded this original i is the personality of god from this original i many individual i's are created so god is the meaning and soul and matter are symbols of that meaning the earth brahman which precedes the sabda brahman is the personality of god at the source of all subsequent symbols and the sabda sabda brahman is the collection of all those symbols
This philosophy of word and meaning seems very interesting. Can you speak more on this? I mean, how is God as meaning expanding into symbols of meaning? What is this process? And can this process be understood rationally and scientifically? Yes, it can be understood scientifically. It just requires a different kind of science and language. So in Vedic philosophy, there are three aspects of God, which we briefly referred to earlier. These are called the Sat, Chit, and the Anand. Corresponding to each of these aspects of God is a type of energy. The energy corresponding to Sat is called Bhuti Shakti or the power of being. When the Shakti combines with God, then many instances of the meaning are created, just like lighting many candles from one candle. So the original candle is the meaning and the lighted candle is the symbol of that meaning. So God is the meaning and the instantiation of this meaning into symbols is caused by this energy called Bhuti Shakti. This is the first aspect which creates the expansion of meaning into words or ideas into symbols of those ideas. Then there is a second aspect called Chit or meaning itself. When Sat is expanding the meaning, it is actually expanding the Chit which constitutes these meanings. However, there is a separate Shakti called Kriya Shakti which divides the Chit into many parts. It's like you can say that I'm going to divide the property of color into individual colors like red, blue, green, so on. So this Chit Shakti divides the original meaning into parts, which means that if God is the original meaning, then Chit Shakti creates many smaller meanings out of God. And Bhuti Shakti is acting on these meanings, which implies that Chit Shakti creates small meanings and Bhuti Shakti creates instances of those meanings. Right? So you can have color, you can have a division of color into yellow, and then you can have an instance of yellow. Then there's a third aspect called Anand, and there is a corresponding energy called Maya Sakti. This Sakti decides how we are going to divide the original meaning into smaller meanings. For example, you are given a pie and you have to slice it up into pieces. Now you could cut it, cut the pie into square, rectangular, circular, triangular, and so on types of slices. There are many ways to cut it up and Maya Sakti is the method of cutting it up. In everyday language, we say we have to classify the world into different types of things, and there are so many ways of classification, which amount to dividing the whole into parts in different ways. So when we talk about the whole dividing into parts, the mechanism is a method of classification. So the basic idea here is that Ananda's pleasure and Maya Sakti is the pleasure-giving energy to enjoy himself. God divides himself into parts, and there are many ways of dividing for example, you can divide color into red, blue, and green, as we talked about, or you can also divide into cyan, magenta, and yellow. So you have to choose one such method, and the alternative of divisions are called Maya Sakti. And the choice of one method is Anand. So you, to, in order to enjoy, you have to figure out a way you, you classify the world, which is a method, and then you apply the method and you get different kinds of uh, distinctions or objects. So God wants to enjoy himself and he chooses a method to divide himself into parts and that is known uh, so that he is known in a particular way. So the possible methods are Maya Sakti, the division in itself is Chit Sakti. Chit Sakti is also called sometimes called Kriya Sakti. It's uh, doing the job of division after a method of division is chosen. The Srimad Bhagavatam, it is stated that God divides himself by himself. Uh, there are two himself here. The first himself is the chit, which is the thing being divided. And the second himself is anand, which is the thing that is dividing. So chit is the dividend and anand is the divisor. And sat creates instances of these divided parts, such that God first creates many ideas, and then these ideas become symbols of those meanings. There's also hierarchy between these energies or aspects of God. And Chit is higher than uh, uh, Sat and Sat and uh, Anand is higher than Chit. So Chit Sakti operates under the control of Maya Sakti and Bhuti Sakti works under the control of Chit Sakti. Uh, there's also hierarchy within God, within the aspects of God. Anand is high, the highest. The Chit or meaning is the next lower and Sat or expansion is the lowest. So first God determines that he wants to enjoy. And at that point, Maya Sakti presents many methods of enjoyment. 
God chooses one method which becomes the process by which God will divide himself into many parts of his own self in order to enjoy his self. And then these parts are expanded into symbols by the Bhuti Shakti. This is a very complex topic and maybe we can cover this you know, process of creation in a separate discussion. Uh, certainly needs a deeper dive into uh, God and his energies. One quick follow-up questions before we finish. I know we can do a whole other episode on this, but maybe you can give a quick answer now and delve deeper later. Why would God want to enjoy? Isn't he supposed to be perfect and does not need anything? That's a good point. The question is sometimes you know, used as a critique uh, about the existence of God or you know, doubts about the existence of God. Because people suppose that if God wants to enjoy, then he must be selfish. Uh, not exactly. There is a difference between asking for happiness and expressing happiness. For example, if you are unhappy because you lost your job, you will seek somebody's company to relieve your unhappiness. That's when you need them. But if you have gotten a new job, then you seek somebody's company to express your happiness in order to transfer your happy thoughts into somebody else's, into, into you know, give your happy thoughts and happiness to someone else. So there are two kinds of, uh, or two reasons to have, you know, company, and both reasons are driven by happiness. But God is not seeking happiness, God is expressing his happiness. He's delighted with himself and he wants to express this delight. So God's happiness is not about asking for happiness from someone. It is rather about giving away happiness or sharing it. There are many beginning one worships God because he or she is in pain and he's a shoulder to cry on. God becomes that shoulder. So there are this class of devotees is called Artha. And one worships because one is having many desires and wants to fulfill the desires. Uh, then there is one becomes inquisitive about God. We are inquisitive about many things. And this is also a sort of suffering out of ignorance. And you want to relieve your ignorance or inquisitiveness. And that's where uh, you begin worshiping God. Then once if somebody has acquired sufficient knowledge of God, then gradually he or she becomes convinced that there is nothing else to be known. This conviction leads to the anxiety that I still do not possess the most important thing because I, I have some knowledge, but I don't have the complete understanding. A true devotee is one who has found the complete destination from a pursuit and is no longer unhappy. So he seeks the company to express his delight and joy. <clears throat> But having found the ultimate truth, there is no expectation of reciprocation in this search. One is contented and therefore shares causality. So that's the answer to uh, why, why, does, why would God want to enjoy? Uh, he, he's, he's not desiring something from the others to enjoy. He's actually sharing his delight. I see. Thank you. Uh, this has been an enlightening session. I can see how science is connected to religion and the nature of God through a succession of steps described in this Vedic philosophy. If there is one more thing you wanted to say to the listeners as a parting message, what would that be? Well, many things can be said in this regard, but the simple message I would like to pass on is that there's a continuum from religion to science, from matter to spirit. There are very detailed descriptions of this continuum found in Vedic philosophy. Unfortunately, these texts are suffering from two problems currently. The first problem is that they are written in Sanskrit and most people don't know how to read that language. We can try to translate these books into English and still Prabhupada began this journey in the 1960s, creating a library of books. The second problem is that even when these books are translated into English, we are still not able to fully follow them because many words cannot be perfectly translated into English without a lot of explanation. For example, I just explained how Bhuti Shakti is the power of expansion by which the meaning is expanded into a symbol. And Chit Shakti is the process by which the whole is divided into parts. 
and Maya Sakti is the many methods of this division of the whole into parts. I was able to give you all this description because we, we have prior developed a full-fledged philosophy of symbols, their interrelation, the soul, and finally the meaning in God. So unless we develop this understanding, it is not possible to translate words such as Bhuti Sakti, Kriya Sakti, Maya Sakti into English. And until we do the translation, most of the text is not understood, even though we write the words in English alphabet and grammar. So we have to continue the journey that Prabhupada started in terms of translating more books into English and the other languages where people can read them. But this is by itself not enough unless we can also provide a detailed philosophical explanation of what the words which cannot be translated directly into English mean. My focus in my work is on the latter part of the problem, where I try to explain the words of Vedic philosophy using common sense, science, and reason. It is rather, I believe that this is, you know, this is not a replacement of the translations that Prabhupada has already done. It is rather for uh, those who may read such books and fail to grasp them that uh, these these efforts would be very useful. So just like Prabhupada wrote commentaries in Vedic texts, I'm essentially writing detailed commentaries on his books, trying to explain them. Uh, the process of explaining and understanding these books is not easy. They have to bring a lot of things to the table before anyone can understand. This naturally means that the readers and listeners must be prepared to spend the time and energy as investments into their knowledge. We can use these conversations that we are doing now to touch upon many more such topics in the future, but hopefully this has been a good start. Yes, I think this has been a great conversation. Thank you very much for talk, taking the time to speak uh, and for this gentle introduction. I would ask the listeners to post comments and questions or drop us an email at adalela, A-D-A-L-E-L-A, at shabdapress.net that's adalela at shabdapress.net in case you have more things you'd like to see us talk about or questions you want answered any final word before we close the conversation yeah we, we'll try to use the initial set of conversations to present a broad overall understanding of the work we are doing so some of the questions that might be common to many people may be answered up front and we can then use the you know, the high level understanding that we developed in the initial conversations to dive and, you know, delve into more details. Uh, thanks you for, thank you for listening. Thank you.